0: And join me in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Very, very excited about the privilege of being able to dive into God's Word together this morning. Especially off the heels of last week. Never stop improving my my Lowe's trips. Uh, seven times in three days, or in four days, seven times in four days, going to Lowe's. The, their slogan screamed at me, Never stop improving. And I realized what a a blessed uh, just reminder as we're going through Philippians chapter three of the effects of our justification that we must never stop improving. And if we do just start to coast, then if it's a pattern in our lives, it would show that we genuinely aren't saved. Last week, we talked about the fight to press on in Philippians chapter three, verses 12 through 16. We're going to finish out the chapter this morning, Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. And as we do, we're really moving on with Paul from uh, the kind of mindset about our behavior to the ultimate goal of how we're going to make this work. How are we to press on? How are we to never stop improving? The reality is the way that we walk before the Lord tells so much about who we are. Paul loves the analogy, the imagery of walking. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, he commands believers to walk worthy. He says this, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, I beg you, I'm on my hands and knees begging you, to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So there's a, a way to walk worthy. There's a way also to walk in an unworthy manner. I think one of the reasons why Paul loves this analogy of walking, this imagery of walking, is because walking in a physical sense tells a lot about who you are, tells a lot about your character. If I see Micah coming from bathrooms over here and walking in a brisk fashion back over to the children's ministry room, then I can probably tell something's going on, that he needs to be over there quickly but he doesn't want to f- make anybody afraid of stuff that's going on. The, ha- the room isn't burning down. We're all okay. But he's walking briskly because we've got something to do. We've got an agenda. Some people walk with anxiety. Some people walk proving their laziness as they just kind of coast around with aimlessly with nothing to do. Walking tells a great deal about us. And if we are spiritually before the Lord claiming to be Christians, professing the name of Jesus Christ, But we are walking in another manner, in a manner that is unworthy of the calling to which we've been called. Paul would say, you have to trace the fruit of your actions back to the root. You claim the name of Christ, but is that truly your name? Are you truly saved? Because you don't see any effects of your salvation. I want to remind us again, we do nothing to be saved. We can do nothing, even the faith to believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation is a gift from God. It's nothing that we can do, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But justification is alone by itself through faith with God working, but it never stays alone. It always produces in us a yearning, a zealous desire for sanctification. And we've talked about this for the last couple months, and now we're going to finish it here in chapter 3. A helpful little note that I ran across from history, Alexander the Great, you know Alexander the Great, a huge uh, military leader in Greece. After a battle, Alexander the Great was talking with deserters, um, people that had run away from the battle, too afraid to engage in fighting and in combat. The penalty for desertion was death so he would line these men up and he would talk to them they would single file go into his tent and he would discuss what they had done their sentence, reason with them this was a specific day where he was feeling a little bit more gracious a man came in, fell at his feet Alexander dialogued with him asked him, why did you desert, what's going on the man's begging, please spare my life I will never do it again and Alexander says, okay, we'll let you go As the man gets up and starts to turn and and leave the tent, Alexander says, Wait, young man, what is your name? What's your name? The young man turns around and can't even look at Alexander. And he just looks at his feet and in a very quiet voice, he says, Sir, my name is Alexander. And Alexander the Great said, Young man, you either change your ways, Or you change your name. You either change your ways or you change your name. I think in essence, Paul is telling us this morning, we need to check and see, do we claim the name of Christ and do we live accordingly or else we need to change our name? We need to change our ways or we need to stop claiming to be believers. We need to stop claiming that. Let's read these verses together and hear Paul's encouragement and his challenge to us as believers Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross, whose end is destruction, whose God is in their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has, even to subject all things to Himself. In the verses before us, we see three ways in which we can walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Three ways. In which we can walk as citizens of heaven and not citizens of this earth. The first of those three is number one, we must follow the right examples. We must follow the right examples if we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. If we are to walk as citizens of heaven, we must follow the right example. Paul starts in verse 17 by saying, brethren, which is not just specifically speaking of the men, it's speaking of everybody, all the believers in the church in Philippi, brothers and sisters, everybody, join together in following my example. Join in following my example. Uh, That phrase, following my example, is one word in the Greek, and it's the word where we get our uh, our word mime, Uh, It's a Greek word that we get our word mime from. Mime me. What I do, just imitate me. What you see me do, imitate it. I will be a mime for you and you mime what I'm doing. I'll be an example. You need to mime everything that I do, everything that I say. He's going to say this in chapter 4. What you've seen from me, what you've heard from me, the way that you've seen me talk and live, you practice likewise. Just do what I'm doing. Follow my example. This is a, a crucial point in Bible-believing Christianity that we must understand. Truth is not merely taught. In fact, I would argue that mostly, mainly, truth is caught, not taught. You catch what is true, and true living by the way you see people living, by the way that you see them interacting. If you don't believe this, uh, just ask others, in what ways do your children imitate you? And then you'll realize the way that you live is probably imitating somebody else's lifestyle and pattern of behavior. Paul says, I want you to mimic me. I want you to mimic me. One of the best ways that we can grow in our ability to mimic others is asking lots of questions. Can I plead with all of our hearts? Ask lots of questions. When you see somebody doing something, ask. Why would you do it that way? You could have done it a million different ways. Why would you do it that way? You have a reason for it, right? And if they say, you know what? I've never really thought about that. I'm sure if you talk together, you'll figure out why they did what they did the way they did it. Ask lots of questions. Dive down into the motivation. Why do you live the way that you live? And ultimately, if you are a Bible-believing Christian, you should be living the way you live because God's word tells you to do something a certain way. And you want to do it that way. Paul says this elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. He says, be imitators of me just as I am of Christ. Imitate me just as I imitate Jesus Christ. He's not saying, hey, I'm the end all. He's saying Jesus is. And as I follow him, imitate me. In whatever respect I am imitating Christ, imitate me. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 9 says pretty much the same thing. Paul says, we offered ourselves to you as a model for you to live. Do you want to know how to live? Look to me. Do you want to know how to live? Paul is saying, look to me and you will see what attitudes to have, what behaviors to have, where to, uh, to, what to do, what to think, how to behave. Notice Paul isn't saying, be like me in my gifting or my ability. Be like me in my personality or the way that I have certain abilities. No, instead he's just saying, be like me as I follow Christ. Press on to Christ-likeness the way that I press on to Christ-likeness. One pastor says it this way, you need to find examples of people who are not buying into the prevailing wind of worldliness around them. You need to follow them like a beacon light in the midst of a storm. Who are your examples? Who do you follow? And who can follow you? Paul knows that he's not going to always be in the church in Philippi. In fact, as he's writing, he's in jail. And so he says the next thing, follow my example, but when I'm not there, which he hadn't been in about ten years, when I'm not there, observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. So when I'm there, what you've seen from me, what you've heard from me, follow. Mimic me. But when I'm not there, to be able to be mimicked, then follow those around you, in your midst, on a day-to-day basis, that would be mimicking me as I mimic Christ. He says, observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. Literally, that word pattern is a very graphic Greek word that means the imprint left by a blow. So Paul's truth had pummeled the hearts and the souls and the minds and the spirits and the character of those elders and leaders in the church in Philippi. His truth, his teaching, the way that he lived his life, had beat into the souls and the minds and the hearts of those in Philippi in such a way that there was an imprint left in their hearts and their thinking. And so too, Paul is pleading with the church as I taught them and the imprint stuck, so too they are going to teach you and let that imprint stick. Please let that imprint stick. The reality and the truth, regardless of what we would like to think, is that we all model ourselves after someone. We all do. There is somebody that we look to, whether it's a leader in the church, whether it's a parent, whether it's a friend, whether it's somebody on television or in the movies or in a book that you've read. There are no exceptions. We all model ourselves after someone. So the question is, are you following the right model? As we said last week, we are all spiritually on an escalator that's going down, and so we must press against it. We must fight against it. And if we just stand still in neutrality, we're going to be moving backwards. Same thing with leaders. There's no such thing as a neutral leader. Either you are following somebody who is propelling you forward in your faith or you're following somebody who is pulling you back and distracting you from pressing on. We need to follow the right model. So where can we get these right models? Let me just give you three places that we can get these models from. Number one, we can get these models from Scripture. Scripture. Romans chapter 15, verse 4, Paul says these things, specifically the history of the characters of Israel and the biographies of all of the uh, Israelites, all of their good things, their bad things, they were all written in the Bible for our instruction to give us encouragement and hope. Get your examples from the Bible, examples of what to do, what not to do. Learn from the heroes of the faith in the scriptures, from those in Hebrews chapter 11. That's the whole reason Hebrews chapter 11 was written to give you a hall of fame of faithful men and women, godly men and women who lived in such a way that they were pressing on to know Jesus Christ. Look to the scriptures to find your role models. A second place that you can find your role models is in biographies. Can I plead with you? Read Christian biographies. Read the uh, biographies of Luther and Calvin. Read the biographies of William Carey, who was just a, a businessman um, God gripped his heart and he began what we know now as modern missions. Just in one man on a whim saying, I'm going to stop my job and I'm going to pursue sharing the gospel overseas. And by his example, God has used him to bring the gospel to millions of people. Read Christian biographies and you don't have to start with the big 700 pages. John Piper has some excellent Christian biographies. They're called The Swans Are Not Silent series. There's six books I believe there are six books in the series, and each book is about 120 pages, and they have three biographies in them. Very, very helpful. You can just break it down into little chunks, little segments, and you can be encouraged by the heroes of the Christian faith that are extra-biblical. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one such hero of the faith in, in my world, says it this way, Is there anything that can be of greater practical value to the Christian who is anxious to truly live a Christian life than to follow such good examples of speaking of biographies, Christian biographies? Is there anything that so helps us in our endeavor to attain to that ultimate goal than to read the lives of God's saints, the biographies of good and godly men and women? He says, speaking for myself, I can certainly testify that I have found nothing of greater value and encouragement. You see the truth in practice. You see it translated from the realm of pure teaching and put into operation. To me, it is one of the saddest features in the life of the church today that so often people are ignorant of the great saints of the past. And I would just echo that. I I plead with you, take up reading Christian biographies to learn, to have models for you on the printed page that will make you honestly assess yourself and say, man, I need to do better. I need to grow. And if God can use this man, he can use me. If God can use this woman, he can use me. A third place to find these role models, scripture, uh, Christian biographies, and finally, practically, here in your midst, the Christians that are in your life. Follow the examples of living Christians in your life today, in this church today. Obviously, there are no perfect Christians But there are those who have strengths and those who have weaknesses. And your weaknesses, you need to look for strengths in those areas of weaknesses and grow. You can look around in this room and there are so many godly examples in so many different areas of the Christian life. Paul says, find somebody. Find somebody and follow their example. But, inherently in Paul's writing, this cuts both ways. Not only do you have to find somebody to follow their pattern and follow their example, But you need to be an example for others to follow. You need to be a pattern for others to follow. What if somebody said, I'm going to do everything you do, say everything you say, the way you say it, think the way you think, feel the way you feel, spend my time the way you spend your time, and follow you in everything you do. Would you be happy with the disciple that you have made? What areas in your life would you say, okay, follow me here, but don't follow me here? Paul says, are you, in essence... Followable, if you can. Followable. Can somebody look at you and say, I want to be like that person? I want to be like that person. Older men, older women, it is your role, according to Titus 2, to seek out younger people and encourage them and say, hey, as far as I'm following Jesus, you follow me too, and let's do this together. Let's do this together. Paul says, you must follow examples and you must be somebody... That others could follow yourself. Secondly, if you want to walk worthy, not only do you have to follow the right examples, but the opposite would be true. You have to look out for the wrong examples. Or can I say it this way? Watch out for false professions. Watch out for false claims. Watch out for people that say, oh, I'm saved, but they truly aren't. You say, where is that in the text? If you go back to verse 17, he says, "...follow my example, observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us." Verse 18, "...because..." So he's saying, do what is in verse 17 because of what I'm about to say in verse 18. And what is he saying in verse 18? "...because there are many who walk in such a manner that they are enemies of the cross." So he's saying, be careful who you follow, because you could follow people that claim to know Jesus, but are truly enemies of the cross." That phrase, enemies of the cross, you can really take it one of two ways. You can either say these are out-and-out heretics, blatant false teachers that know it. They're just in it for sordid gain. They're just in it for money. They're just in it for pleasure. They don't care, and they know it. I don't think that this is what Paul is saying. I don't think these are people that are persecuting the church. I don't think these are people that are destroying the church. I think these are people that are potential candidates for following. And Paul says, but they are false claims. Of knowing Jesus. As you're looking to find somebody to follow, be careful because there are people who say they know Jesus and they're walking and they're following Jesus, but they don't really. And ultimately, it will become evident. It will become evident. He says, Many walk, many walk, not just some, many walk, of whom I often told you when I was there with you in Philippi. I saw these people. I said, Be careful of these people. They claim to know Jesus, but I know by their lifestyle that that is a false claim. One of the greatest lines in the book that we studied this semester, The Gospel and Personal Evangelism by Mark Dever, one of the best lines in that whole book was actually a quote by um, George Whitfield and and Martin Lloyd-Jones talking about, look, if you share the gospel and somebody says, I believe, I believe in Jesus Christ, I want to know him as my Savior, be excited, be um, encouraging. Yes, praise the Lord, but be wise to say time will tell if your profession is real. You need to bear fruit and you haven't been able to bear fruit in the second that you received Christ, that you profess faith in Jesus Christ. And I love what Whitfield says. He says, don't don't be afraid of doing that because a genuine believer that will never harm a genuine believer, a genuine believer. If they hear time will tell if that profession is real, will say right on. I know right on. I need to bear fruit and hold me accountable to bearing fruit. A false professor, a false person in professing Jesus would say, excuse me, I just made the profession of faith. Why are you second-guessing me? Why are you second-guessing me? It will never do any harm to say, praise the Lord for the profession, but you must bear fruit. And let's hold hands as we walk together in discipleship before the Lord. Paul says there are so many there in the church in Philippi. When he was there, and now he tells them, even weeping, verse 18, I often told you, and now I tell you again, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross. He knew it before. He probably encouraged them, confronted them. Please, your profession is not true. Either change your name or change your ways. They obviously did not change their name or their ways. And so Paul says to the church in Philippi, be careful who you are looking to as an example to follow, because there are people who claim to know Jesus but are truly enemies of the cross. Just notice that he weeps over these people. I think that we can come sarcastically to enemies of the cross. I think that we can come rudely, bitterly, with anger in our heart. It's not the way Paul comes here, nor really elsewhere in Scripture. There are times that he is frustrated because of their disbelief or their causing others to go astray. But I don't think he's ever angry at a person. I think he's angry with what's happening. He's pleading with the person to repent. Please. He's weeping. That word weeping is used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe people that are weeping and wailing at a funeral service. This is not just crying tears because one of his friends is gone. This is as if he were at a funeral with a family member that is dead and he's weeping over their body. They're enemies of the cross. Verse 19, he gives us descriptions, a fourfold description of what these enemies look like. Who are these enemies? What do they look like? First, he says their end is destruction. Their end is destruction, verse 19. All that means, destruction is hell or God's wrath, and so their end, though right now it looks like they're following Jesus Christ, their end is actually hell. Their end is not going to be in heaven where they claim they're going to be one day. This is so reminiscent of Matthew chapter 7, right? where uh, Jesus says there are going to be people that say on that last day, Lord, Lord, we cast out demons in your name. We are one of your disciples. We love you. And he will say what? Depart from me. I didn't know you. You claimed to know me, but you didn't really. And I did not know you. Depart from me. Their end is destruction. Though their profession would seem to be that their end will be glory in heaven, their end truly will be destruction. Destruction. These are people that F.F. Bruce says are deliberately indulging in sin, repudiating the will of God, denying all that the cross of Christ stands for. You remember the list in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? Paul goes through um, neither idolaters nor homosexuals nor sexually immoral, and he goes through all of these different lists of sinful practices, and he says all these, none of them will inherit the kingdom of heaven, and such were some of you. You remember that list in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? At the very beginning of that list, Paul says a couple words that are very important for us to hear. He says, Do not be deceived, my brothers. Neither idolaters, nor the immoral, nor so on and so forth. We can be deceived. We can be self-deceived, thinking my profession of Jesus Christ, of knowing him, is good enough. All I have to do is claim to know him, With no lifestyle backing that up, no effects of justification. Don't be deceived by others who claim to know Jesus, but their lifestyle would prove that they do not. Galatians five nineteen, Paul says that the deeds of the flesh are evident. They are shown in the way that you live your life. According to one man in the Middle Ages who was all he claimed to be a believer, listen to his words: the world is remarkably well arranged. I like to sin, and God likes to forgive sin. This man professes Christ, but that is not, that is not the words and the character and the lifestyle of a genuine believer. So, their end is destruction. Number two, in verse 19, their God is their appetite. Literally, their God is their belly. It's not necessarily meaning that they're gluttons or they love to eat. It's meaning that they love visceral things. They just love fleshly desires. They crave for the passions of the flesh. That's all they care about. Thirdly, their glory is in their shame. could mean one of two things. It could mean that they are glorying in their sin, and Romans 1 would back that up, and I believe that that's true. I believe that um, non-believers will ultimately call good evil and evil good and will glory in their evil. Yes, I believe that. It could also mean, and I personally lean to this, because we're talking about the Judaizers here. We're talking about the enemies of the cross or the Judaizers who said, believe in Jesus Christ, profess faith in Jesus Christ, and you will be saved only if you also practice circumcision. You must practice circumcision. If you're not circumcised, you're not saved. If you remember in the Old Testament, there were Different expressions, uncovering their nakedness, uncovering their shame. I think that this could be a reference that they are saying they're glorying ultimately in their private parts. They're glorying in the fact that they have a work, an act of human will that earns salvation. Paul says if you glory in yourself, if you glory in any act you can do, you are an enemy of the cross. Because the cross is necessary because you cannot do anything to earn salvation. You can't so Paul says they glory in their shame. Their end is destruction. Their God is their appetite. Their glory is their shame. Fourthly and finally, they set their minds on earthly things. Their goals, their ambitions are only in this world. They live only for the present. They're worldly minded. Worldliness just really means that one has come to be at home in this world. I'm at home in this world. He's going to juxtapose people who have their minds set on this world and the things of this world, and then people who have their minds in heaven, set in heaven on their citizenship in heaven. So he says these enemies of the cross set their minds on earthly things. Legan Duncan says it's a matter of what you love. It's a matter of where you belong. It's a matter of what you want. Worldliness takes control of our mind, our will, our affections, It takes control of our thinking and living and desiring. And we become captive to a lesser joy than the real and true joy that is only found in treasuring God and his glory in Jesus Christ. A Puritan wrote, For the worldly, their gold is their God. For the believer, God is their gold. I love that. Is God your treasure? John Newton, in a hymn, wrote, Fading is the world's pleasures. All of his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. Oh, those who live for this world claim to have it made. They claim to have all the treasures, all the beautiful gifts, all the the toys, all the things that they love, but only... Zion's children. Only God's sons and daughters know true joy because all that we see around us is passing. It's fleeting. It's going to be gone in the blink of an eye. Can I give you a test? I want to give you a test for how worldly your mind or your heart might be. Do you set your minds on earthly things? Imagine in your heart, imagine in your mind's eye, in a little sanctified imagination here, that you are sitting at a Starbucks with one of your best friends who is an enemy of God, who is a pagan, who is not saved, okay? They're sitting across from you. All you've desired to do all your life with them is share the gospel with them and so you have a believer sitting across the table from a non-believer. Now, both of you take out a piece of paper and you start writing down what you care about most in life. What are your habits? How do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? What do you want more than anything else, else in this world? What are your aspirations? What are your greatest desires? What are your ambitions? What do you want out of life? You write it all down and then you compare the papers. Would yours be any different than a non believer's list? How would it be different? How should it be different? See, if we profess Christ and we profess to say, he saved me and he has plucked me, ultimately my soul is out of this world and I'm a citizen of heaven, but we still follow the exact same desires and goals and passions of the world. I think Paul would say, you need to be careful about your profession. Either change your name or change your ways. Change your name or change your ways. Again, Legan Duncan says, quote, friend, all that you have to do for worldliness to happen is nothing. You don't have to go out. You don't have to court worldliness or date it. It's looking for you. It knows where you live. It knows your street address. It knows your email. It knows your cell phone. It knows your heart. And unless you're resolved not to buy into the lie that's all around you, you will be sucked in. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, It is possible for a man to make a whole series of intellectual assertions But if he lives his life altogether in the other direction, then it is proof positive that his faith has not the slightest value and is indeed not faith at all. That summarizes these enemies of the cross. They make a a profession, an intellectual assent to say, I know who Jesus is. I know he died for me. I'm a sinner and I'm saved by grace. And then nothing in their life changes. No effects of justification. Lloyd-Jones says accurately, it's proof positive that your faith has not the slightest value and is indeed not faith at all. Faith without works, in the words of James, is what? It's dead. It's dead. The reality is our behavior always betrays our belief. No matter what we say we believe, our behavior always betrays our belief. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Follow the example of those that claim to know jesus and genuinely walk according to the pattern of following him pressing on to know him secondly be careful be wise be discerning watch out for false claims false professions that you would say i'm going to follow that guy and then you find out that their behavior would prove that their profession is just a sham and thirdly and finally if you want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called and ultimately if you want to walk as a citizen of heaven. Paul will say, set your mind on heaven's glory. Thirdly, set your mind on heaven's glory. Follow the example of those who are pressing on to know Jesus. Watch out for false professions and false claims. And thirdly, follow or set your mind on heaven's glory. Follow that example of others that are doing that. And you yourself set your mind on the things above. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Set your mind on the things where God is seated at the right hand of the Father. How can we do this practically? How can we set our minds on things above, on heaven? Let me just give you three ways that we can set our minds on heaven and the glory that is awaiting us. Number one, remember where you belong. Remember where you belong. This is verse 20. He says, because, again, follow examples of godly people because there are people who claim to know Jesus but don't really. So be careful, follow the right people and don't follow the wrong people. But be careful and discerning and don't follow those who are enemies of the cross because they set their minds on earthly things. And because they do that, we need to be reminded, in verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven. So these people are enemies of the cross because they set their minds on earthly things. But we set our minds on heavenly things because our citizenship is in heaven. Remember where you belong. We're citizens of another world. If you've ever traveled outside of the United States, it's easy to tell that you are not a local. Local. It's easy, it's obvious, and frankly, it's embarrassing at times. You just want to blend in. I've gone to the Philippines before where I think the tallest person in the Philippines is like 4'3". I I can't blend in if I wanted to. I'm pretty much translucent in my skin color, and I'm, I'm taller than everybody by double their size. It's obvious to tell that. That guy's not from around here. If somebody in the Philippines looks at me and goes... I think he might be a citizen of our, of our country. They need to get their eyes checked. Another thing that happens when you go out of the U.S. for extended periods of time is there is a longing in your heart to go back. Oh, I love going around. I love sharing the gospel. I love going on mission trips, but at the end of the day, when my feet land back on United States soil and I get to go home to a comfortable bed, to indoor plumbing, to food that I'm used to and my body is used to, I'm happy. We long to be home. Paul says we're not citizens here. Don't set your mind on earthly things because this isn't your home. Your home is elsewhere. Your home is somewhere else. It's in heaven. Remember where you belong and you will begin to set your mind on the things that are above. Number two, how are we to do this? Remember who you are waiting for. Don't just remember where you belong. Remember who you are waiting for. He says our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we belong. From which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember who you are waiting for. We get so bogged down by talking about end times. Eschatology is a great thing to study, and it's important to know the hope of the end times and what is going to happen. But brothers and sisters, we are not waiting for an event to take place. We are waiting for a person to come back, to wed us, to bring us back home to be with him for all of eternity. We're waiting for a person. Jim Boy says it this way, are you looking for Jesus's return? If you are contemplating some sin, perhaps a dishonest act in business, perhaps perhaps trifling with sex outside of marriage, perhaps cheating on your income tax, then the return of Jesus Christ, if these are your thoughts, has not made its proper impression on you. If your life is marked by a contentious, divisive spirit in which you seek to tear down the work of another person instead of building it up, then the return of Jesus Christ has not made its proper impression upon you. If you first protect your own interests and neglect to give food, water, or clothing to the needy as we are instructed to do in Christ's name, then the return of Jesus Christ has not made its proper impression on you. Turn to 1 John and you'll see where he's getting these truths. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, John writes verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it didn't know Him. We're not of this world. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, when our Savior appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope, the hope that Jesus is coming back for you, everyone who has that hope f- fixed on Jesus purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. Everyone who has the hope of the return of Jesus Christ that we are eagerly waiting for, Jesus' return, will purify themselves. Everyone will. doesn't mean we're perfect, but it means there's a pattern in our life that we looked at last week of never Stopping Improving. D.A. Carson writes, Paul insists in the strongest terms that genuine Christianity, the kind that he wants imitated, lives in the light of Jesus' return. It is the kind of Christianity that joins the church in every generation in crying, Amen, come Lord Jesus, come quickly, the words in Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. In short, it is Christianity that is preparing for heaven, For that is where our true home is, our true citizenship, our true destiny is there. Only that stance is sufficient to make Paul's attitude towards suffering sensible and reasonable. If cheerful identification with Christ and his sufferings in this world finally issues in the spectacular glory of the Lord's return and the splendor that follows, then we too are vindicated in a fashion somewhat analogous to Christ's own vindication. You hope in Jesus and his return and your hope will never be put to shame. Ever. Remember where you belong. Remember who you are waiting for. You are a citizen of heaven. And if your citizenship in the world is truly in the world, if this is all you're living for, then it makes sense to live in worldly ways. But if your citizenship is in heaven, it makes no sense at all to live in worldly ways and it only makes sense to wait with eagerness for Jesus to come back and call you home. Finally, uh, number three, remember what you'll become. Remember where you belong. If you're wanting to set your minds on heaven's glory, remember where you belong. Number two, remember who you're waiting for. And finally, remember what you will become. Paul says, we eagerly wait, end of verse 20, for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, verse 21, will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. There's a a play on words here in two ways, really. Number one, you remember Jesus condescended to become human. Remember, that was his humiliation, that he took on the form of humanity. He took on the likeness of men. So, too, in the reverse way, humans, you and I, will one day be conformed into his image and be glorified the way that he is glorified. So it's a play on words. There is one day coming that in the opposite fashion, Jesus was humiliated to become human and the body of our humiliation will be conformed to the body of his glory. The second play on words is in context here. Paul said that these enemies of the cross glory in their shame. They glory in their body and what they can do to their body. Their God is their appetite. They love their body and they love the fleshly desires of their body. And Paul says, we do not. We have humble bodies. We don't have anything to glory in about our bodies. And we cannot wait for the day when Jesus glorifies our bodies and we're done with sin. We're done with pain. We're done with it all once and for all. Paul says he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Some of us might say that's going to be really difficult for him to do. You don't know how badly my body hurts when I get up in the morning. You don't know how difficult this will be for him to do. And Paul says, ha, no. How is he going to transform your body? By the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So Jesus can say to anything in this world, bow down to me, and they must do it. He says the same thing to your bodies. Be completely healed. Be made perfect. Be glorified. It'll be a simple thing for him to do. It'll be a simple thing for him to do. Paul will continue in verse one of chapter four. Therefore, because of these things, and we'll look at this more in the coming weeks and months ahead. But he says, because of all these things, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my crown and my joy in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And ultimately, he's saying in the way that I have just described to you. Stand firm. Because of everything that I've said, stand firm. And then he's going to give practical application of it. Practical outworking. If you are standing firm, here's what must take place. But these are the ways that we stand firm. We stand firm by resting in our justification by grace through faith alone. We stand firm by renouncing self-reliance and saying, we have nothing to offer God. We are not perfect in and of ourselves, and we have nothing but sin to offer to him. We can never become somebody that God would say, I want them on my team because of intrinsically who they are and what they have to offer me. Nothing. And yet Jesus, because of his amazing love, says, I love you. I love you, I purchase you, I redeem you, and now I treasure you, and you will glorify me as I shower you with love. We stand firm by remembering our justification is by grace alone through faith alone. We stand firm by remembering that justification ultimately produces something and we press on. But we press on because He has laid hold of us. We don't press on because we're afraid we might lose our salvation. We press on because we know we have salvation. And we know we can never lose it because He will never lose His grasp on us. We stand firm by following the right examples. We stand firm by watching out for false professions. We stand firm by setting our minds on things above all of these things, all of these ways. Paul says, This is how you stand firm in this way. Legan Duncan says, How do you resist the world? How do you resist worldly living? You find a believer who's acting like Paul and you follow them. You remember that worldliness kills, he will put you in a box and cover you up with dirt from which you will never recover. You cultivate that homesickness that this world is not my home, and so you live like this world is not your home. And then you stand fast. You strap yourself to the mast by God's grace, and you say, Lord, shut my ears, shut my eyes, shut my heart to all the things that the world wants to tell me will give me satisfaction that will only make me value those things more than you. I want to stand firm in Christ. Alone. The question for us this morning is, who are you ultimately going to serve? Are you going to serve Jesus and treasure him above all things? Or are you going to serve yourself and treasure your desires? Is your glory going to be in the things that you love, your visceral desires, your shame, your body, whatever it is? Or are you going to live for Jesus alone? It's like we're back in 1 Kings chapter 18. We're on Mount Carmel where we've got Elijah and we've got the prophets of Baal. There's only two options. You can serve God or you can serve yourself. We're back in Eden, for that matter. Are you going to do what God tells you to do or are you going to seek to be satisfied by the one thing that he says will not satisfy you, cannot satisfy you, and that's why he doesn't want you to touch it, to be near it, to eat it, to taste it? That's where we are. I want to end by practically living out what it is that Paul is pleading for us to do, setting our minds on things above. The greatest cure for worldliness is not staring at the things of this world and saying, what do I have to give away? Oh, I love this thing and I don't want to let go. Oh, what do I do here? The greatest, the greatest way to conquer and to cure the, the disease of worldliness, the cancer of worldliness is to stop looking at the world altogether and look in heaven. Look to heaven. Look to Jesus. In the song, of, uh, the words of the, the hymn writer, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look upon Him and not upon things of this world, this earth. And as you stare at Him, the things of this world will grow strangely dim. One pastor says it this way, and I'll close our time in listening to the word, and then I want to sing in response to what Paul has encouraged us to do. The pastor says it this way, when history as the world knows it no longer exists, and there are no longer any great kings or great wars or great political nations, when there are no histories of countries left to cherish, no more dollars, when it's no longer the strong versus the weak, and all that is left is the story of the great God and King, and all has been righted, and the heroes are now the missionaries and the ministers of grace, of which every believer can be, and our eyes behold him as he truly is. Words will fail. And this is where our hearts need to be now. This is where they need to be now. Father, I thank you for heaven. I thank you for the motivation that it gives us. I thank you for the reality that one day we will be with you. All of our struggle with sin will be done away with. All of our love for the things of this world and idolizing them over you will be done away with. We will finally see you as you are supposed to be held be beheld and we will finally we will finally treasure you with nothing else in our view to treasure. God, we long for that day. And even as we've been singing songs that echo the songs that are sung in Scripture, holy, 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 seen in Isaiah chapter 6 where we see the Lord high and exalted lifted up lofty the train of his robe fills the, t- the temple with glory and the burning ones the seraphim can't even help but cry out day and night their song unceasing there is no one like our God holy 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 is the Lord God almighty the whole earth is filled with his glory God we see that song as well in Revelation They are singing that song even now. Take our minds, take our hearts, capture our attention and remind us this moment that this world is not our home. You alone satisfy. You alone are holy. You alone are the worthy Lamb who was slain. And to you and you alone be all the praises.